All right. So if you're con uh, continuing, if you're finishing up that thing, you can wrap that up. But I'm going to uh, invite you to grab your Bibles and meet me in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Um, today, Paul is going to continue uh, down the line in his exhortations from husband and wives, like we saw last week that uh, Pastor Ryan preached um, from his exhortations to husbands to, to serve their, lives, uh, their wives, to, to die for them, um, to um, and, and lead their families in, in, in specific ways. And he's going to continue on to parents to children, and finally from slaves to masters. Um, and even hearing that out loud, don't get too worried. Paul's not advocating for slavery and definitely not chattel slavery, what we've experienced in the West here. And we'll talk more later about why we should primarily think of that context of slaves and masters as the context of the relationship between employers and employees. So we're going to see this, what we're going to see this morning is God has a good design for families, and he has a good design for the way that we should see our work. That Paul is primarily concerned with making sure followers of Jesus honor him in all of their relationships. So the main point of this text this morning is that followers of Jesus are called to honor Jesus at home and at work. Um, if you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles at the back of the room on your way in, uh, consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. If you don't own a Bible, just keep it. And um, we are going to see what God has to say for us about children and parents and bond servants and masters in verses nine, uh, 1 through 9 in Ephesians chapter 6. The word of the Lord this morning speaks to us like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ." doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Masters, do the same with them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. We pray again for God's help. Lord Jesus, as we dive into your word this morning um, and see what it has to say for our homes and what it has to say for how we view work and our relationships that mark just all of the individuals that are in both of those categories, God, I pray that you would give us uh, clarity uh, of mind this morning. God, I pray that you'd give us uh, a clarity to be able to see um, with spirit-filled eyes this morning, hear with spirit-filled ears what you would have to say for us about the way that we parent um, as parents, as we relate to our parents as children, and as we relate to each other in the context of work. God, I pray, would you guide my voice this morning, and would you allow the, the gospel to be on full display among us as we hear your word together this morning as a church. We pray this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, this text breaks down into two main sections, uh, and as we'll see, there are some unifying themes that we'll see along the way. Um, first is honoring Jesus at home with children and parents in verses 1 through 4. First, that children are to obey their parents. Uh, th th then Paul gives a reason for that obedience. He roots it in Scripture. And then finally, 
he gives special responsibility to the fathers in the room and fathers in the marriage. But then he shifts into another section um, in part two, um, where he talks to slaves and masters, honoring Jesus at work. And then he speaks directly to the slaves and commands them uh, to be obedient to their masters. And finally, he says to masters uh, and talks to them about their treatment of slaves, that God really takes seriously the relationships of authority um, and, and people in positions of authority, specifically uh, employers or masters in this, in this uh, case, he really cares about the way you treat your employees in the context of work. So let's dive in now and see that this teaching from Paul, it really is valuable. It speaks to us in a, for a number of different reasons. First, every single one of us was a child at some point. Every single one of us, uh, some of you here in the room, you're, you're young, uh, you still are children in the room. And I'm just going to speak directly to you this morning. Uh, some of you kids might get uncomfortable with me actually looking at you and talking to you like I did to Ryan this morning, right? I told you I was going to talk to you. Um, but all of us at some point are going to have children, most of us. Not to mention a job and a boss, but Paul's concern here isn't to make sure that we all have kids or that we all have a job. His concern is that whether is whether or not those relationships that we have with those individuals honor Jesus. So whether you're a parent or a child or an employee or a boss, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your main concern in life is to honor Jesus in all that you do. To, to be like what we say around here all the time, to be for the fame of Jesus in all things. That's what we saw last week in the relationship between husbands and wives. Uh, that being a picture of Christ and the church, putting the gospel on display. So that means that honoring Jesus is the point of marriage. The Christian marriage is, isn't about getting something for yourself. It's not about what you could gain, but rather for a way to give yourself away, to give yourself up to another so that they can thrive like Jesus gave himself up for us so that we could live. And that's why after addressing the relationship between husbands and wives, Paul turns his attention to the relationship between parents and children because the home is where the gospel should always be on display. The relationship between parents and children, though, is very different than one between a husband and a wife. So let's see what Paul has to say about what honoring Jesus in the home looks like. So Paul first says in verse 1 here that, that children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So notice that Paul uses a different word than what we kind of focused in on last week, that children are to relate to their parents with this word called obey rather than just respect, like Paul uses with husbands and wives. Oxford Dictionary defines obedience like this. Obedience means compliance with an order, a request, or a law, or submission to another's authority. This means, like Ryan mentioned last Sunday, that parents share not only uh, this command of counsel that they should teach their children, they should try to persuade their children, but they, uh, they wield the authority of command over their children. Just not, not just counsel, but something more, the authority to command. And this means that parents must teach their children to obey, and it's going to take work. Parents in the room, you, you get this, right? Your baby didn't come out as sweet and cuddly and then grow into a two-year-old. We don't call them terrible twos for nothing, right? Like kids are sinners, you know, little, little babies and children, they're, they got black little hearts that need Jesus. And if you're a parent, you get it. A lot of us are in the throes of young parenthood or maybe you've been through it before. 
You just can't expect a two-year-old to obey every command just because I said so, right? You're going to have to do some teaching there. You're going to have to play the long game with loving correction and discipline with your kids. Also, too, children in the room, kids here, you are commanded by God to obey your parents. And guess what? Newsflash, this is not a bad thing. This is not uh, something that's wrong with the world. Restrictions are actually good for you, and they, sh- they lead towards our flourishing. And if you don't think so, think of it like this. Let me ask you a question. Is a dog, say a kid's in the room, if, say if you're a kid, do you have a pet? I mean, if you have a pet, anybody kids have pets in here? You got a pet. Is your dog more free running around in your fenced-in backyard or in the middle of the interstate? So there might be some in, like, knee-jerk reaction to like, maybe, maybe just maybe that, that dog on the interstate is more free because he can do whatever he wants. But it's like, no, if you think about that two seconds, that backyard is where the dog can thrive. The backyard is where he has his own domain. He's more free there with those restrictions because he doesn't have to worry about getting taken out by things that he shouldn't even have to worry about. See, restrictions allow us to live more freely than if we didn't have them. Think about in the very beginning of all things when God created humans. He created Adam and Eve and he gave them a rule, right? Why did God give them that rule? To not eat of the tree. It was to protect them. That rule is to protect them from death. Think about the Ten Commandments. Why did God give the Ten Commandments to his people? It was to protect them from strife. It was to protect them from becoming disobedient and separated from him again. So kids in the room, your parents are gifts given to God by God to you to guide you and protect you. And for kids in the room, do your parents, though, get to tell you to do anything they want, no matter what? No, Paul gives us a restriction here. He gives us some boundaries. This says, he uses this phrase that children are to obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord, this means that the short answer, do your parents get to tell you what to do whatever? No. Paul says that children should obey their parents in the Lord. That means that if parents try to lead their children into sin, children should rightly disobey. And if for parents in the room, you just sat up a little bit straighter there. Parent, uh, children should rightly disobey. And I, yes, I mean this. Take just a, uh, one example here. Take lying, for instance. Maybe you're a parent, you've got a kid in grade school, and you may have had the inclination to have, you know, little Johnny's homework. Uh, he didn't do it or got lost or whatever. Maybe it's your fault. And you're like, just say the dog ate your homework. And it might feel like a little white lie, but what are you doing in that scenario? You're teaching your child it's okay to lie. Don't do this, parents. Don't allow your child to, in, in some ways, teach your child it's okay to lie over here, but it's not okay to lie over there. We can't speak out of both sides of our mouth. Can't tell grandpa, tell our kids, don't tell grandpa we had a glass of wine at dinner last night. He won't like that. Don't tell them that. There's another way that our parents might try to lead. And if it's into sin, we get to say no because our obedience to Jesus is of higher importance than our obedience to our parents. But kids' obedience isn't just for obedience' sake. Next, Paul looks for the reason for obedience in verses 2 through 3. Let's look at it again. Paul says, Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. See, Paul recalls the fifth commandment here. 
given in Exodus and quotes it directly to give a clear reason for why children should obey their parents. The, the promise of a long and prosperous life for those who honor their parents. Now, I think there's something much more going on here than the promise of a 401k and a long life, thinking like, well, the more I obey my parents, the longer I'm going to live. So if I just obey them perfectly, then I can live forever. That's not the way this works, right? That's not what God is trying to get at here. I think what God is ultimately trying to get out here is that if you learn generally to obey godly parents, you will turn out to be less of a drain on society. You will learn how to be a healthy citizen. You will learn how to not get your way because you're not a spoiled brat. Always getting your way. See, I think this promise does, though, point to a greater meaning. And it's the promise of not just an earthly reward, but is referring to an eternal reward. Think about this. Obeying Jesus is rewarding in this life, but also so much more in the life to come. Jesus is the embodiment of God dwelling with man, the place where we get to experience God in fullness. So being with Him is the promise of our reward. That it might live long and it might go well with us in the land. If Jesus is the place where God dwells, His presence is our good. And so following Jesus and learning how to follow Jesus by obeying our parents first helps us see that our eternal reward is in heaven with God, the place where he dwells, that it may go well with us for all eternity. So then, one of God's means to bless children is through their obedience to, to their parents. But then Paul continues to give one final charge to parents, and it's to a specific parent. And you, you might assume, if you were to back away from the Scriptures and say, well, who's, gonna, who's Paul going to talk to here? You might assume he might be talking to the mothers, the ones who literally... Keep children alive with their own bodies in the first years of life. But no, Paul turns to fathers with a specific assignment. Look again at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So why does Paul address fathers here? Why wouldn't he address the mothers? And I think this is because it's not because mothers are unimportant in the household, but I think it's because in this passage... Husbands and fathers are held accountable for the spiritual health of their households. Husbands and fathers are held accountable for the spiritual health of the home. And I like to think of it like this. Uh, men are responsible for setting the spiritual thermostats of the home. Maybe you uh, battle back and forth with your spouse or maybe even your own children. Learn how to work that thing and get the air going up and down in the home. But ultimately for the spiritual health of the home, Men are, are held accountable to set the thermostat of, of ensuring not just uh, not for doing everything in the household, but making sure everything gets done to make sure your children are pointed to Jesus. So quick question to fathers in the room. Where is your thermostat set? Does your family pray together? Do your kids have a growing knowledge of God and his word? I'm not saying that there's one guy here in the room this morning, certainly not me, who's doing everything perfect with this. But today might be the day where you take a look at that spiritual thermostat and, and consider it might be time to take that thing up another notch. See, if fathers are going to be held spiritually accountable for the home, what does Paul tell them to do? Paul uh, gives fathers a negative and a positive. First, the negative, don't provoke your children to anger, but then two, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's address the first one first. 
on the whole, tend, uh, men tend to be more prone to anger than women. Uh, what comes to mind for me is 1 Timothy 2, uh, where Paul's talking about men and women in, the, in gathered worship. And he's like, I just wish guys would wish their, uh, raise their hands uh, in worship of God instead of throwing hands with one another and quarreling all the time and trying to fight with one another. I think on the whole, generally men are going to relate to their kids in such a way that could provoke them to anger. See, fathers are going to have to ensure that the way that they discipline their children does not lead to discouragement of their children. We've all heard stories about those who felt like they could never measure up or that the standards put upon them by their fathers were just unattainable. See, fathers, we must be careful with, what, with how we communicate and, and what we expect of our children. Also, fathers will need to make sure that they do not provoke their children to literal anger. See, fathers can do their children great harm in kind of picking at their kids or, or belittling them or joking with them or do, having playful behavior that extends into being borderline abusive with their children. And often, sometimes, fathers do not know that they are doing it. This is why we need each other in the church. It's why you need to be in meaningful community with others in the church that have a view into your family, have a view into your marriage, and can call you out and say, Hey, brother, I, I, know, I noticed the way that your son responded when you said this to them. I noticed the way that your wife responded when you did this or that in their presence. We need each other to point each other to, to better disciple and to, set, to, to better be uh, images of Christ for our families. See, fathers are urged not to provoke their children to anger, but instead bring them up in the discipline. And yes, I said discipline. Some of us are kind of afraid of disciplining our kids, but you got to do it. You have to discipline, but also the instruction of the Lord. And then we've got to see those two things together. So what does this look like? And I think a picture of God himself as our first father might be helpful. We've already mentioned uh, the first two humans, if you want to think of them, the first two kids, but God asked father all over them all the way back in Genesis. And we're told that God made Adam and Eve in his image. Like all children are images and like little images of their parents. But very soon after that, they, they broke God's law and fell into the lie of the snake and, and they were separated from God. They clothed themselves with fig leaves and hid from God. And now herein we see a picture of God as father and an example of fatherhood for us. We see God in Genesis 3 walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The way the story describes this is that this would have been something maybe regular or even a daily occurrence. And this should tell us and inform us as fathers that we should create regular patterns and habits in our household and in particular with our kids that shape our relationship with our children. But then next we see God come looking for Adam. God seeks after his children. We as fathers must proactively seek after our children. We must initiate conversations with them and our spouses. God also proactively speaks. He speaks first. Men in the room, sometimes you've got to speak first. He speaks, Adam, where are you? Noticing him in his own state, noticing the state and emotional state of Adam in that time. What does God do when Adam fesses up to what actually happens and even tries to shift blame to his spouse? God protects. He protects Adam and Eve from death and the consequences of their actions. Yes, a death would be coming for them at the end of their lives, but he protects them from the immediacy of death. He shows grace to their kids. 
So then fathers must show grace to their kids. Then also God provides. God kills animals and uses their skins to cover their nakedness. Fathers then are called to provide for their kids at great expense to themselves. See, why is this all important? There's no other human relationship in our life that tends to shape the way we see God more than our relationship or lack thereof with our fathers. The way that we view our fathers shapes the way that we tend to see God. See, some of us had great fathers, loving, patient, encouraging, provided you know, careful discipline over us. But still more of us have had horrible fathers, abusive, neglectful, distant. Some of us, and most of us, I'd argue, just had a father who was somewhere in the middle, a man who was just trying to do his best. Some days he'd get it right, and other days he'd get it wrong. And that's often who we as fathers here in this room are. See, here's where the good news of the gospel comes in. See, Jesus, this is what the church has been proclaiming for the past 2,000 years, that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, through his sacrificial death on a cross, and him coming through the other side of death, showing his victory over sin and the grave, he now has reconciled us back to God for anyone who would believe in him. And now we gain God as our heavenly father. See the status that only Jesus could actually have as a beloved son of God, as perfectly righteous. That now can belong to us as sons and daughters of the most high king through what Jesus has done. And also too, for those of us who are fathers here in this room, Instead of feeling the pressure to be God for our kids, to have everything figured out, to be that perfect shining example, or just feel like an utter failure when you get it wrong, no, we get to step aside as fathers and point to our children's one true heavenly father, the one who could never let them down. And our role is just facilitating that relationship the entire time God gives us to shepherd our children while they are in our home. Because the point of being a father isn't to, to father your children forever. In the beginning, it says that like a husband, I mean, a man is going to uh, leave his mother and father and cling fast to his wife. And that a new thing is going to happen over there where the potential of new children is going to happen. Where new fathers and mothers are going to get created elsewhere. Our job is to disciple our kids while we have this opportunity. And we should not squander the opportunity to do so. And so then, fathers, how do we do that? Get practical for a moment. Fathers, if we are going to, uh, to bring our, our kids up in the, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we must know God's word for ourselves. If we ourselves aren't equipped with the word of God to be able to give it to our kids, we're just not going to be able to make the transfer happen. If you aren't immersing yourself in God's word, you're not going to be able to raise your children according to it. And I'm not saying you need to be a Bible scholar to be a father, but I'm saying you do need to spend time in God's word and prayer. See, a lot of fathers taking spiritual responsibility for the families boils down to three things. What you promote, what you allow, uh, what you, uh, and what you do not allow, and how consistent you are with that. Because the, where this fathering work happens, where this instruction and discipline happens, is going to be the mundane places of life. It's going to be around dinner tables. It's going to be on vacations. It's going to be uh, the time spent in the car with your kids. It's going to be that conversation of driving them to school. What are you doing with those times? What are you promoting? What are you allowing? What are you not allowing during those times? 
I think some of the obvious things that we want to promote is, you know, prayer and Bible reading, service to others, acts of kindness, generosity, time spent here in church. All those things are really great things, uh, but they're going to look different in different seasons of life. When you've got littles in the household, let's just say Bible study with a two-year-old is going to be a challenge, okay? It's going to be a ch- scripture memory with a three-year-old. It's just going to be a challenge. You know, you've you got to gauge your expectations on what the life stage of your kids is going to be. But taking those times that you do have, if you've got littles, pray the Lord's Prayer with them before, bre- before bed. If you've got older kids, take them through a book of the Bible. You don't have to do it all at once. Maybe it's once a month, you, you, you get together, you get some you know, bacon on the table and a Bible, and we're going through the Gospel of John. That's all it needs to be, dads, in the room. You don't have to complicate and have this five-year, ten-year plan in order to implement something this week. And it matters how consistent you are with those things. What you're promoting, what you're allowing, what you're not allowing. And let me, let me just say, spouses, you have to be in agreement on some of the things you're going to allow and not allow. Because screens will divide, right? <laughs> like helmets for bikes will divide, you know, roughhousing, certain movies, TV shows, uh, what types of video games that you allow, internet access below a certain age. Those things have the potential to divide you and your spouse and what you're going to allow or not allow with your children. So it's going to take a lot of proactive conversations, like God is our first father being proactive with us. We as fathers have to be proactive in some of this stuff with our spouses and with our kids. And all this takes wisdom to navigate. And it takes both mothers and fathers to come to unity on these things, to to come to what they're going to promote as a family. Now, I need to address something that is going to be sensitive, but I haven't talked about quite yet. So far, we've been talking in terms of ideals here. Ideals that both mom and dad are in the same home. Children are, are there, and there's not major complications But what happens when that's just not the case? What happens when dad deploys? What happens when parents divorce? What happens when parents are abusive? What even happens with with blended families? See, I know that these are realities, and these can be really tough to navigate. Each of these situations will need prayerful consideration and, and great wisdom to navigate. But I do think it's important to say most clearly that in all of these things, Our primary concern, if we have that in front of us, is honoring Jesus in the relationships that God has called us to. See, if there is divorce, if dad is deployed, if there are these kind of hard situations going on, there's going to be a lot of wisdom needs to go in that. And God is calling us in each of those situations. But by the fact of us even just being there, we're called to honor Jesus and represent Jesus in that relationship. See, situations where fathers are out of the home for work, whether that PCS or work season or whatever. See, mothers are going to have to step in and fill some of the void left by their fathers. But when a dad returns home, I think there just must be a deferral to the initiation of dad once again. And it's not going to happen overnight, but there should be, and I think that using the term kind of the dance of leadership in the home, where someone is clearly leading uh, with these spiritual things that are happening in the home, must take place. Yes, it takes a lot of patience to learn, but it must take place. But even more so in the reality of divorce or or remarriage or or with blended families, those situations can get kind of muddy beyond all belief. 
But first off, if you're there, I just can't imagine how tough it must be. Know that if you are here and you have experienced one of these things, or if you're currently experiencing it, and we love you, we are for you, we want to support you, we want to come alongside of you, we want to welcome you in community so we can kind of walk alongside of you in this thing. We know that you need a support system uh, to kind of continue to, to have Jesus at, in, as your focus as you endure this really, really rough season. The divorce does happen. Unfortunately, it's becoming more and more prevalent in our society. See, divorce should always be done for biblical, biblical reasons for abandonment, adultery, or abuse. But it does happen, but it's never going to be ideal. And I'd love to give you a, a list right now of all of the do's and the don'ts in all, in all of this. Uh, but I think the whole of Scripture would exhort you towards one thing primarily, a heart posture of desiring to honor Jesus and make much of him above all else. So if you are divorced, how can you honor Jesus? And point your kids to Jesus if you have them in, in your decisions. If you have a blended family, how can you relate to your ex-wife or husband in such a way that they even are pointed to Jesus by the way that you relate to them? If your marriage is ending for any reason, how can you be radically uh, committed to showing honor to Jesus by modeling Christ-like behavior, even when your relationship with your spouse is ending. See, each of these situations is tough, but God's desire is for us to make much of Him in our homes and our families, no matter how complicated these relationships might be. Moving from this section on parenting and the relationship between children and parents, we're going to move on to honoring Jesus at work. This relationship between slaves and masters, or for our case, employees and employers in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Uh, let's take a look at that again at verse 5 through 9. We'll read these together again. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will is to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So again, Paul's concern here is that our relationships at work should honor Jesus to that end, he addressed specific areas of concern for both employees or slaves and their bosses, masters. And it's worth mentioning how remarkable it is that Paul even addresses slaves at all. Think about this, this period in history where slaves would have been seen as somewhat second-class citizens. Yes, it was a means by which many ordinary folks willingly chose to, to get into better, a betterment for themselves, like opting into a sense of slavery— so that they could climb the social ladder. But Paul addresses the quote-unquote second-class citizens in the room and even includes them in this letter to the church. And this shows the truth of the gospel that it's not, it not only unites Jews and Greeks, but even slaves and masters. Apparently, there was some problems to address, though, in these relationships. So you might have noticed, again, the use of the word obey here. And uh, for some of us, the room might make you a little bit uncomfortable again. Like, you know, employer, employees obey your employers? 
That seems a little harsh, right? That seems like a strong word. But Paul uses this for a reason. It says that bosses have the authority to enforce their authority if we as employees don't do our jobs. So just kind of putting A, uh, a and B together here. A, if you're employed, and B, you don't do your work, what can your boss do to you? He can fire you, right? He can fire you. He can put you on a probation. He can make sure that the things that you said you're going to do, you actually follow through with them. See, of course, there are very bad employers who are unjust in their hiring and firing practices. But Paul's writing to followers of Jesus here. He's writing to the church. He's assuming these people are followers of Jesus. And so Paul's big exhortation for both parties is essentially this. First, encouragement for employees to work diligently as if working for the Lord, and the responsibility for employers to treat their slaves justly and fairly. The people that they oversee, the people that they're in charge of, justice here and fairness and is, is, is paramount in that relationship. So let's talk about employees first. Let's be honest. It's easier to find ourselves doing just good enough to not get fired in our job. I mean, that is kind of the, the point of the job description, right? Like, if I do these things, then I will not get fired. You know, I'm doing a good job. And so, even for some of us, going above and beyond isn't really possible because our work is done on a computer at home. And so, Paul tells us that our work, that even though our boss, uh, our boss might sign our paycheck, we aren't ultimately working for human bosses. Our real boss is in heaven, and his name is is Jesus. He is our real and true master. And Paul tells us to obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling, not not because we should be scared of our bosses, but because we serve Jesus. And uh, did you notice as we read through those those verses again, the Godward nature that Paul tells us to view our work? Look at verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We're doing God's will as we work. This is the way we should see our work. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So in your job, no matter what it is, you're not actually working for the people there in your office or on in your squad. You're not working for those guys. You're working ultimately for King Jesus. You're serving King Jesus. And then verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So you're not even working for a paycheck, not an earthly paycheck. You're working for an eternal reward that God sees, that God approves of, that God would be honored by in our service, whatever it may be. There's actually a reference to Jesus in every one of these exhortations to slaves which further highlights that our work should always be done unto God. That when we work, we should do so with integrity and wholeheartedness, not hypocrisy or ulterior motives. Because ultimately when we serve Jesus and not our boss, we shouldn't just work hard when the boss's eye on us. We serve Jesus and he sees us all the time. He also says that our serving should be willing and cheerful instead of reluctant and begrudging. Doing the will of God from the heart. But Paul, that's not all Paul has to say here. Paul doesn't stop with addressing the way that, that, that we might serve in the ways that wouldn't honor Jesus. He makes sure to address the bosses as well. So if you are in any way in charge of anyone at work, open those ears up. These words are for you. 
Verse 9, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. For its time, Paul's message to masters here is shocking because he encourages mutuality to those who could wield their authority against those who were in their service. At this time, masters could execute uh, certain ways of discipline on their slaves that we would just absolutely be uh, abhor and be uh, disgusted by. But Paul is encouraging a mutuality here. Did you notice what he says at the beginning of verse 9? Do the same to them. He said, if you want respect, be respectful. If you want uh, to be served well, you need to serve them. This is an extension of the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. See, if we are uh, in charge in any positions of authority, there's a few things to take away here. We, we need to treat our subordinates with respect and dignity. If we want respect and dignity, dignity in return. This is something that's paramount in our relationships and should mark our relationships with those under our authority. So we should never think that partiality or unjust treatment will go unseen. God will deal with unjust treatment. If you've got favorites on your team and you treat people better just because you like them more or you root for the same football team or some type of other reason, God knows that. God sees that. And there will be retribution. God sees what goes on in our own heart. See, honoring Jesus at work and at home both with parents and children and in our work with with employers and employees is incredibly important because it communicates what we value to the watching world. We as followers of Jesus stand as ambassadors of Christ. So the way that we parent our children and the way that we perform at work and the way that we lead out uh, in, in the places of authority that we've been given in our life communicate more than we might think. Other people are looking at us and saying, that guy, that gal, claims to be a follower of Jesus. And if our actions don't match what we truly value, honoring Jesus in all things, this is is not going to go well for us. We must check our own motives. We must check the way that we do things and the way we go about things by the way that God would have us lead and live and make sure that we are communicating the good news of the gospel in a right way to everyone else around us. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, I pray this morning um, that these words from Ephesians chapter 6 about parenting, particular role of fathers, and the relationships between employees and employers, um, God, uh, would help correct us, uh, that the words of your scripture uh, would have their intended effect, that they would reprove, um, that they would rebuke, uh, that they would encourage um, they would bind us up by the power of your spirit, God. Those of us that are uh, feeling weak or feeling um, like we are wounded. Uh, Jesus, I pray, uh, would you bring about, um, by the work of your spirit, uh, just incredible, healthy God honoring marriages and families um, where parents um, in this room take the discipleship of their kids seriously, um, where they point their kids to Jesus, um, where they show grace to their children and model uh, repentance before them. 
God, I pray that even in our work relationships, you would mark in and through these people as a part of this church, and men and women who serve with excellence um, as to God and not to man. That the, the men and women that hold positions of authority um, in work relationships would do so with fear and trembling themselves, uh, knowing that um, the way that they're viewed and that they are ambassadors of you, Jesus, uh, that they would be communicating something about uh, the way that Jesus sees them in and through um, their relationships at work. God, for the ways that we need to uh, repent this morning, God, I pray that we would do so, uh, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us um, as we uh, pour out the ways that we've broken um, your law, broken um, the ways that you would have us operate uh, before you. And you're faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen.